Open your Bibles to James chapter 4 as we uh, enter into a new chapter of this book, but not a new subject. The uh, Bible, uh, you may or may not know, was originally written without chapter titles. And so if you were to read the original uh, version of the book of James, there wouldn't be a break between chapter 3 and chapter 4, or any of the chapters for that matter. There weren't even really verses. All of those things were added really just a couple of hundred years ago. So if you're reading James uh, just in its original form, it would become obvious to you that what we are looking at is just a long, continuous discussion of the issue of conflict. We, we really began with it at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 3 where James began to talk about the issue of the tongue. And you remember in verse 9, he tells us uh, that we, with one tongue, bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's how he uh, began the chapter, and then as he rounds near the end, he explains to us, not just rebuking us for our duplicitous tongue, but he confronts the attitudes that produce the kind of bitterness and jealousy that, that eventually manifest itself in these kinds of toxic words. He tells us in verse 15 that this bitterness and jealousy comes from a, a kind of wisdom, a proposed wisdom, which is really earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And he contrasts all of that with true wisdom, which he says is abounding with peacefulness and gentleness and reasonableness and full of mercy and good fruits. False wisdom that promises truth but just produces toxic bitterness, true wisdom that eventually produces an environment of peace. So James has already given us a tremendous amount of insight when it comes to conflict, when it comes to animosity, friction, all of those kinds of tensions that develop between us and other people in the various environments where we live. He's already given us tremendous discernment about how to use and understand the use of our tongue and how to deal with issues of conflict. But he's not finished just yet. And as we move into chapter 4, we see the language that he is using clearly indicating that he has much, much more to say to us about, uh, about this topic. In fact, he begins in verse 1 and 2 speaking about quarrels and fights. And you can see all the way down even in verse 11 and 12 when he's speaking and he's still addressing the issue of how we speak evil against one another. So James has much to say about this issue of bitterness and, and evil speech. And James 4, James 3 and 4 really is perhaps the, the most thorough analysis of interpersonal conflict that you will find in any text ever. Any single text, any one place, it is the most thorough analysis of conflict from any single passage of Scripture and with divine authority gives us the most keen insight into these kinds of frictions that arise between people. James basically is dissecting, we might say, dissension among us or giving us the anatomy of a conflict. Now, I thought about sort of beginning this message by giving you all kinds of statistics and, 
and all kinds of examples about how conflict surrounds us all the time. But then, you know, I thought, I don't really need to do that because you know very well conflict between siblings, conflict between parents and children, conflict between friends, conflict between co-workers, conflict among leaders, conflict among politicians, conflict among nations. We know it. It is all around us, and it is too, too familiar. It's personal. There's probably not a single one of you here today who is not either in a conflict or recently coming out of a conflict at some level. So what James is saying here is not abstract, it's not distant from you, it's not vague, it is a part of your life, it is something that has defined you, it has maybe impacted you from a personal level, from a marital level, from a parental level, from a career standpoint. This kind of conflict has marked your life. And what James is saying here is therefore not distant from where you live, but... It is distinct. It is distinct from probably what you've heard. It's distinct from the common notions and the common idea when it comes to diagnosing conflict and diagnosing your problems. Because virtually everything written on the topic, almost everything you read or hear, focuses on external circumstances, external factors. The problem is your, is your environment. The problem is your upbringing. The problem is all the stress that you're under. The problem is your job. The problem is your boss. The problem is your spouse. If you just knew the problems that he had or she had, then, then, then you would understand, someone might say. The problem are your parents who are too demanding, too strict, too overbearing, too whatever. Whatever it is, as the conflict erupts or as the conflict just burns on, the common assumption, the common description and explanation always seems to come back to the external factors. Ten years ago, a Stanford University Social psychologist Philip Zimbardo published a book entitled The Lucifer Effect with the subtitle, How Good People Turn Evil. It was a New York Times bestseller uh, for a number of months and still many, many people uh, cite this book. It was written really as a response to what Zimbardo, Zimbardo excuse me, uh, looked at as an outbreak of all kinds of animosity and agitation. He wrote it kind of at the, at the uh, height of the Iraqi war. He wrote it not long after the Abu Ghraib prison scandals and the political turmoils that were surrounding us. He talks about the Palestinian and Israeli conflicts, the school shootings in our own nation, and on and on and on. He lists a whole number of factors about this this explosion, he felt like, in our society of animosity and aggression and anger and conflict. And what he concludes is that basically all of this stuff is not the result of Uh, what he would call natural disposition. It is what he calls situational. He pins the blame in the opening chapter on situations, quote, situations that unleash powerful situation forces or situational forces, end quote. 
In other words, our problem, the problem with all of these situations, the problem with all of this aggression is primarily your environment. It's primarily where you live, who you live with, how they affect you. The influences from the outside. Now, what Zimbardo says is maybe with some level of sophistication, some new take on what is really an old idea. Just a new expression of an old assumption that the source of your problems, particularly the source of your aggression and your conflict, all of it is your environment. It is the circumstances that you find yourself in. Well, listen to me. James has a completely different message for you. A distinct message for you. A divine message. A message from God. And it confronts this common assumption and it challenges you to reorient your thinking when you find yourself in a conflict. And, and, and listen to what James says about conflicts. We'll just read the first six verses of this chapter. What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that's not everything that James has to say about this subject, but it really frames the primary contrast in our mind. It really gives us the big picture of this anatomy of a conflict. And you'll notice he is dissecting this issue here and boiling it down to, if you want to say what is really at the heart, it is this, you want something. You want something. And the other side of that is this, you forget that God is the giver. You want something and you forget that God is the giver. It's very clear as you just read these verses, the first couple of verses, he, he says it over and over again. You desire and do not have. You covenant, covet and cannot obtain or you do not have because you do not ask. This is the central issue that he's addressing in these chapters or these verses. You do not have something that you want. But then by the time you get down to verse 6, the shift in tone, the shift in focus has happened. And James is now telling us that God is the giver. He gives grace and He gives grace to the humble. He gives gifts. He gives generously. He gives graciously. He gives to those who humble themselves before Him. 
Now that's the, that's the, that's the gist of it. That's the whole of it right there. That is the anatomy in its essential parts, its basic structure when it comes to conflict and dissension and all of those other things. But what we want to do over the next two weeks is we want to go deep into this, as deep as we can, and see how James develops all of this in this contrast of these two ideas, this contrast between you wanting and not getting what you want and you forgetting that God is the giver, that God is the sovereign one over even your situation where you're not getting what you believe you want. All of these things become to us keys then, first of all, to find more peace in our lives when we feel the rise of tension and bitterness and anger and resentment within us. It's first of all a key to finding peace in our lives. And second of all, it is the key to giving you and me wisdom to know how to resolve the conflict that's around us. James is giving us the anatomy of a conflict, the understanding of the inner workings of a conflict so that we can better understand how to resolve them. Now, with that in mind, we're going to take a look at, in the next couple of weeks, five factors that contribute to conflict in our lives. Five factors that James gives to us that contribute to conflict in our lives. The first one is fundamental in verse 1, and it is this. It is the aim of a selfish desire. The aim of a selfish desire. He He asked the basic question, what causes these quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, James doesn't even have to guess whether there are quarrels and fights. You remember, he didn't write this book to a specific congregation and a specific people. He wrote this to the 12 tribes, he says in in chapter 1, verse 1, to the 12 tribes who are scattered throughout all of the Roman Empire, to, Roman Empire, to, the, to the, the diaspora, as we would say. So, so these are all kinds of people in all kinds of situations spread out all over. And yet James doesn't even have to guess whether or not this would be relative to them. He knows. And he can just throw it out there in a general way. You have quarrels. You have fights. I am sure of it. Now, what causes them? What causes them? Now, this is like the question he asked us back in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? It is supposed to be an arresting question. It is supposed to be a question that confronts immediately your assumptions. Just like back in chapter 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, he was confronting those people who were assuming that they were wise. You remember, these are the ones who were clamoring to be teachers. Some of them wanted to be teachers, he says at the beginning of chapter 3. They wanted to be leaders. They wanted to be first. And James shows them the evidence that shows or or, or demonstrates, I should say, why they are not so wise, not so understanding. Well, here, so many of them who are in conflict for whatever reason would have the assumption that the cause of their conflict is outside of them. The cause is someone else. And James immediately confronts that with this question. He wants you to know that no matter what your assumption is, that is not the case. You remember James is is giving us this long and drawn out uh, 
uh, discussion, as I said, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, and we don't really know what issues he has in mind. As I said, it wasn't written to a particular situation, but he can just sort of assume the pride, and he can assume the the uh, jealousy, and he can assume the envy that lives among us. He's already mentioned those, as I said, who wanted to be teachers. He's already mentioned those who have selfish ambition in their hearts and envy in their hearts. He's already sort of diagnosed the common issues among us. And he wants people to know. He wants them to question themselves. Where does this come from? Well, he tells them exactly where it comes from. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's not some other person. It is not your your children who are giving you such a trying time right now. It is not your spouse who isn't doing everything you want them to do. It isn't your boss who is coming down hard on you. It isn't your employees who just won't yield and submit to you. It isn't your co-workers. It isn't your environment. It isn't your upbringing. It isn't any of that stuff. Where does it come from? In general, in a general way, if you have quarrels and fights, James says, where does it come from? Is it not your passions? Now, you might think that your situation is different. Oh, sure, I understand. Some people are selfish. Some people are greedy. I understand that that gets people in trouble. But, but you have to, for, for me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on a crusade. I'm fighting a good fight. If you understood what this person was doing, if you understood how, how difficult they've been and how, how they treated me and how all of this stuff, and you can just give the litany and the long list, James doesn't make any allowance for that. He doesn't open the door to that at all. D. Edmund Hebert says, The unpleasant fact is that their turbulence comes from the desires that battle within you. It derives not from a noble fight for the truth, nor an environment that is beyond their control, but from their own self-seeking desires. End quote. In other words, every conflict, no matter what you find yourself in, every conflict... Every one of them is completely under your control. Because it comes from your pleasures and your passions. The word is hedonai. Hedonism is the word we derive from that, which is the belief that pleasure is the highest good. Hedonism is a kind of devotion to pleasure as the aim of life. And in a similar way, James is here talking about a kind of devotion to your pleasures as your highest aim. Making pleasure, making self-satisfaction, self-gratification, self-exaltation, making all of that your highest purpose. And then James in verse 2 even adds another word, you desire, which is sort of the typical word for lusting or, or, or just being driven by your appetites, you desire, or he even says you covet, which is the same word back in verses, uh, he used back in chapter 3, verse 14 and 16, which was the word for jealousy or envy. So it's all just jealousy and envy and greed and all of those things are coming from within you and driving the conflict. 
Someone has something you want. Someone has some power that you covet. Someone has some possession that you want your hands on. Or someone is getting praise and attention that you believe you deserve. Someone's taking away an opportunity that you think is rightfully yours. It might be as small as a parking place in the, in the uh, shopping center. And they... They swing in there before you get in there and you just blow up. Or, or they cut in front of you in the line and you just bristle with anger. I saw this. I was standing in line in the, um, for my visa in Kenya and it is a chaotic environment. I mean, uh, the, the, the country itself is uh, loosely governed by rules. And so, really, as a matter of culture, you go stand in line and you kind of take your place in the queue and, and just you have to endure the next hour of person after person after person cutting in front of you. And, you know, you could, you could get all upset about it. I mean, you could go to blows over it if you wanted to. Or you could just sit back and say, I'm not going to let that bother me. I'm not going to... I'm not going to let bitterness or anger take hold of me. It just is what it is. If God wanted me through this, this uh, visa check thing any faster, he would have put me at the front of the line or he would have kept those people from landing in their plane or whatever it might be. But I, I don't really have to worry about taking this. Is it unjust? Sure, it's unjust. Is it wrong? Sure, it's wrong. But it doesn't mean that I have to allow that to rise to a conflict. I remember standing there just kind of, uh, you know, looking at my phone or whatever, minding my own business, and just watching the temperature and the anxiety of the people rise around me as this was happening and making little comments at one another and all of these things. Someone takes something you want. They fail to give you the honor that you believe you deserve. They don't recognize your efforts at work. They don't notice that you did the dishes last night. They don't pay attention to the clothes you folded. Or you fall into self-pity and anger because you believe that you're having to give up more, do more than everyone else at work. And that desire forms in your heart. Some knick-knack, some toy, maybe a home or a car or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's just profit Maybe, it is just, maybe it's just making profit on a job and you see someone taking advantage of you and you explode in anger. Perhaps this is an achievement, a task that you want to finish. Maybe it's just the way you want things done. You just want them done your way so you can have the self-satisfaction that things were accomplished the way you wanted them to be accomplished. And so you, you feel a sense of, of ease. You want it your way. Whatever it is, all of these desires are within you and they basically amount to one thing, to selfishness. An object, a desire, but the common denominator is always you. It's always you. An internal conflict that erupts into an external battle. It's inside your heart. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, if you're going to win the battle, if you're going to win the battle, you're not going to do it by defeating your opponent. 
you're going to have to defeat the desires. If you're going to win the battle, you're going to have to defeat the desires. You can't give in to an earthly, fleshly, natural, demonic wisdom that comes from below, as James talks about in the previous chapter. You can't give in to that jealousy and that selfish ambition. You can't give in to all of that stuff. You're going to have to give your mind over to a heavenly wisdom. You're going to have to deal with these desires in your heart. This is the Christian view of conflict. Society doesn't want to acknowledge it. Society doesn't want to deal with it because they don't want to admit what it says about every one of us. People say all the time, well, well, the reason I'm having such a difficult time with other people, the reason I have all this rage and all this frustration and all this stuff is because of the injustice I've suffered. It's, it's if you just understood what they were doing, if you could walk in my shoes, if you could live in my house, if you could get in my skin, if you could understand all of these things, it's because of how I've been treated, it's because I'm misunderstood, it's because I've tried everything and it hasn't worked. And you're just going to hear a laundry list when you enter into one of these conversations, a laundry list of what some other person has done wrong. You can hear all kinds of excuses. But the thing you never hear is someone coming saying, well, actually, it's, it's the desires of my heart. Yeah, I've got all this conflict because I've got these unrestrained selfishness in my heart. But this is the divine view. This is the biblical view. You can read all the experts you want. They can get all their nuances, all their intricacies, all their sophistication, and all of their books. But if you want the divine view, this is it. Listen to the words of Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, theft, false witness, slander. The world believes all that stuff comes from something else. You have a murder, they want to deal with all the external factors. They want to take your guns or your video games or whatever it might be. All that stuff has got to be dealt with outside. They tell themselves it's outside. That is the problem, it's the environment because it helps them to maintain a sense of self-righteousness. But the Scripture tells you it comes from inside. In fact, James says in verse 1, these are desires which are at war within you. It's military language. Stratuo is the word here. They're at war within you. They're strategizing your inner cravings of the flesh. They're always strategizing how to overtake your soul. It's the same language that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2, 11, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So there's a battle that's going on in your heart and mind and for your conscience. If most people really saw the appalling selfishness that's in our hearts, they would be horrified. And so what we do is we battle to keep all of that stuff at bay. We battle to keep all of it sort of hidden and suppressed, but it lives there. And then at times we give in to the battle and we just let ourself and we let our selfish desires overtake us. We let them win in a skirmish. And James uses this term of, of military conflict, an ongoing, long-term military campaign, guerrilla warfare, 
where desires and passions and, and uh, uh, idols, we might say in your heart, they are, they are intended or, or intent on capturing and enslaving and ruling and dominating and destroying you. You understand, probably as well as anyone, the ugly selfishness that's there. You try to keep it suppressed and hidden, but at times you give in. And for whatever reasons, you feel justified to give in to your basic hedonism. Suddenly, your own satisfaction, your own enjoyment, your own pleasure becomes your chief purpose. And it erupts. And anyone getting in your way is an object of attack. Which which is where James takes us as he moves beyond the aim of these selfish desires to the second factor that contributes to conflict, which is very clear in this anatomy. It is the attack against others as the problem. The attack against others as the problem. When you give in to these desires, waging war against your soul, they take control of you. The next step for you is to take aim at someone outside. James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Whoever stands in your way now has to be overpowered, overcome, beaten down, or just eliminated. The person who stands in your way, the person who holds your possession, the person who who is in the way of your ease and your comfort, the person who is in the way of your material profit, the person who is in the way of your reputation, that person has two options. They can either just surrender to your bellicose uh, uh, beating of them or they can or, or, or they can just suffer the consequences because you're going to go after them you're going to make their life as miserable as you can James says you murder which is obviously strong language but no stronger than Jesus in Matthew 5 21 you've heard that it said it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment but I say to you Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, is liable of hellfire. So Jesus' point is the actions, the outcome, it, 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 can, it can take all kinds of forms. It might be murder, or it might just be insults, or it might be criticism, or it might just be belittling language to someone. But the origin of all of it is the same. It's the same inner impulses. Will Varner says, James's language sounds so extravagant, so exaggerated in our ears that we might feel we must refuse to see our small-time disagreements and occasional squabbles as meriting such a description. But if we take this line, we only show how imperfectly our thoughts have been brought into captivity to the obedience of the Messiah. End quote. This is it. This is the divine perspective. James doesn't just limit his language to those major categories of conflict. It could be the angry cry of a little infant, the tantrum of a child, the bullying of a teenager, the criticism and gossip of associates and friends, the manipulation and contention that lives in your workplace, the verbal assaults 
that are cast across the internet, the, the, uh, the attacks and, uh, and rhetoric between politicians. It can be murder. It can be massacre. It can be everything in between. It all comes from the same source. It's what's in your heart. Concern with your own interests above the interest of others. So our inner discontentment boils over into outer attacks and all of it aims at the destruction of whatever's in our way. We become hostile. We become critical. We tear others down. We say everything we can to discredit them. We're consumed with having them eliminated. We're consumed with, with vengeance. And James's emphasis is that these internal desires are driving all of this. You have to attack the internal desires to begin with. You have to attack the internal desires. Look with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 just to show you a very practical application of this. Paul's writing to believers who are also having similar kind of animosity. And he has such a simple, profound solution for them. 1 Corinthians 6, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So this is somebody who has a grievance against another brother, and he basically is choosing to litigate this. He's going to litigate this. We, we understand that. We live in such a litigious society. Verse 2 Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial matters? Or do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more the matters that pertain to this life? So he's talking about the the eventual coming kingdom. And what he's saying is that we, the saints, will judge the world. You say, well, what do you mean we're going to judge the world? I mean, I thought God was going to judge the world. He's talking about the redeemed world. He's talking about whenever you and I reign together with Christ, which Christ promises we're going to do. We're going to reign together with Him. Who are we going to reign over? We're going to reign over the world. What are we going to be doing? Well, part of what we're going to be doing is making judgments. He says, don't you know Don't you know that you're already going to have this very dignified and very exalted kind of responsibility to judge the world? You're even going to judge the angels, he says. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, listen to what he says in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, somebody's going to rise. Well, I can, Paul, I can give you all kinds of reasons. If you have long enough, I I can list out all of my reasons, all of my reasons why I shouldn't be defrauded and why I shouldn't suffer wrong and why I shouldn't, why this shouldn't happen, why this is unjust. But you know, Paul's not concerned with that. 
He's not concerned with that. He knows that the quickest way to diffuse whatever conflict it is is for you just to give up whatever your desires are. You just give up whatever your intentions are. It will absolutely resolve the conflict. Why not just rather do that? See, if you're going to resolve conflict, if you're going to be one who's filled with wisdom, as James talks about in James chapter 3, then you're going to have to deal with this, not at the level of the external person. You're going to have to deal with this at the level of your desires. Notice even back in James 4 what James says. The emphasis is not just on this internal desire, but even its unfulfilled nature. You desire and what? Do not obtain. You covet and what? Cannot obtain. You do not have, I should say, and you cannot obtain. So this animosity is just exaggerated by unfulfilled desire. I mean, even when, you, even when you belittle and beat down your opponent and you finally get your way, it still leaves you frustrated. You still are unfulfilled. And all the frustration just adds to your sense of internal harassment as you have given yourself over to a self-centered life. And in reaction to that, you quarrel and fight. That self-centeredness that you have when you allow it to take control of your heart, it never satisfies. It will never give you what you want. Even if you bite and devour everyone around you, your bitterness just will continue to consume you. All of your methods, they don't bring the desired satisfaction. It's just a lie. Because that kind of lust doesn't satisfy, it destroys. It destroys. So you're jealous. You're desirous. You're idolatrous. You are envious. You want something and you've set your heart on it. And you think it's going to be the answer to everything. And so you go to war against anyone who is your perceived obstacle they're in your way and even when you conquer them you still feel a dissatisfaction in your heart and you fight and you quarrel and you fight and you quarrel so if you find yourself this morning deep 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 in the dissatisfaction of some kind of conflict Here is the profound and life-changing truth. James gives it to us at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. What's he saying? He's saying God is the giver. If you just basically had a correct view of God in this situation, that's all you need. But see, you've given yourself over to a worldview where God is either no longer good 
or he's no longer in control. You've given yourself over to a worldview where the things that you are seeking and the things you are desiring are completely up to your own scheming and your own conspiring and your own attacks. And you, in six simple words, you have lost sight of God. That's your issue. You have not because you ask not. You say, well, it can't be that easy. I mean, just ask God. Yeah, You ask God. Remember James chapter 1? We already talked about it all the way back in the very beginning. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Why? Because God gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God's a generous giver. Later on, he says, every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes where? It comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shadow or shifting turning. You say, well, yeah, I know God gives me some good things, but this thing that I want, this good thing, I've got to take it for myself, and I've got to bend this person to my will, and I've got to control them to get what I'm after. No, you don't. No, you don't. You do not have because you do not ask. You are not trusting God. You are not believing God. He can take care of whatever it is that you believe is standing in your way. All you do is deal with the internal desire. You deal with the internal desire and the conflict goes away. You reorient your self-centered life to a God-centered life. And the conflict goes away. Now we have more to say on that. And we'll get to it next week as James leads us to a third factor contributing to conflict, which is this absence of asking God for the things you're seeking. The absence of asking God. Some of you here today, you have known nothing but internal turmoil and anxiety and conflict because you've had no answer outside of yourself. You hear about God, you hear about religion, you hear about Jesus, but all that stuff is kind of like fairy tales to you. Well, listen, we're here to tell you today that is not the case. Jesus Christ not only walked on this earth, He gave Himself on a cross to redeem all those who would be His. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He did all of that stuff to free you from your enslavement to these passions, these kinds of desires, and in turn, all of this turmoil and anxiety that you live in. Jesus Christ is a Savior. And if you're here today and God is working in your heart and you know that you need this salvation, you know you need this Savior, let me encourage you, when we're done here, when we close in a word of prayer and a song in a moment, would you make your way down this hallway and to the right? We have a visitor reception there. And we would love to have the opportunity to speak to you, to talk to you, to share with you from the Scripture exactly how you can have all of your sins forgiven, all of your conscience cleansed, your life restored, renewed, 
in Christ and you at peace with God. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song, as I said. Father, we're so grateful for this word this morning, this reminder that is so simple and yet so penetrating, so profound and so liberating. We can only pray that your Holy Spirit would impress it on our hearts, which we still sometimes don't want to yield to. The desires still wage war within us. They still fight for control. Help us, O Lord, free us from our selfishness. Free us from these hedonistic pursuits. Give us the perfect peace which would release us to serve you and glorify you in everything we do. Give us wisdom that comes down from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.